Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. Should a Christian vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Right? That is a question a lot of people are asking themselves right now. Hey, welcome back to this edition of Creating the Future. We are so excited to have you with us, and we get to listen to a very interesting debate between David French and Eric Metaxas that was so generously provided for us by John Brown University, their Center for Faith and Flourishing, and they were so nice to be able to allow us to use their debate uh, that they had there at the university on that particular subject of how a Christian should vote. Now, if you've watched a lot of the presidential debates, debates, you know that there's a lot of bickering and fussing, some of which is really just a picture of what's happening in mainstream media right now. And sometimes those debates are not the most helpful. I think this debate is much better at actually showing issues, what's going on on both sides of the campaign and really humanizing both sides of of the aisle uh, so that we don't look at the other aisle side as the enemy or as the devil themselves, which happens on both sides, but really looking at the issues. And maybe you've already voted, maybe you've already decided how to vote. Either way, I think this is a very illuminating debate as we hear from two very intelligent people who both love the Lord and have chosen to vote different ways. So uh, again, thank you to John Brown University for allowing us to use this video. And I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy this great debate uh, between David French and Eric Metaxas. To Trump or not to Trump? That is the question, whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous Twitter or take Biden in the sea of COVID and by opposing end it, to vote. To vote no more. And by no vote to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that voting's heir to, this election is not devoutly to be wished. To vote or not. To Don, perchance to Joe, Aye, there's the rub. Well, good evening. My name is Jay Bruce, and you may be surprised to know that I am not the poet in residence here at John Brown University. Instead, I'm a philosophy professor and the inaugural director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing now in its second year. Being the director of a center means that I raise money from outside the university to do events such as this one tonight. Well, last week, somebody asked about my agenda for the evening. Agenda, I thought. I have no agenda. But the person persisted, speculating a political motivation. I responded by saying, I have no partisan agenda. But I do have an agenda. The truth. I want to know the truth. Should Christians vote for Trump? I hope I am open-minded enough that if I hear a compelling and persuasive argument for Trump from Eric Metaxas, a New York Times bestselling author and radio host, then I'll vote for Trump. I hope I'm open-minded enough that if I hear a compelling and persuasive argument against Trump from David French, a columnist and lawyer, that I won't. Now, you may not be as open-minded as I am. Still, this event is for you. 
if at the end of our time together, you haven't changed your mind at all, then you at least have heard the very best arguments for the alternate position. If you're a Christian who plans on voting for Trump, you've heard reasons why people don't. If you are decidedly a never-Trumper, you've, you've heard reasons why people do vote for Trump. Now, learning the reasons why people do things that we don't like helps us appreciate them more, even if we still don't like what they're doing. Now, I've reflected this week on how I serve my country. I'm a philosophy professor. I don't serve my country by getting students to vote for this or that political candidate this November. Instead, we here at JBU serve our country by raising up a generation of college students who are willing to countenance disagreement, who can resist the temptation to, to take every criticism personally, who are willing to think that they may in fact be wrong on certain issues, and who are willing to cling just as fervently to truth, even when they do so only with God to help them. Tonight we are helped in our project by Eric Metaxas and David French. I first heard Eric Metaxas in 2012 when he spoke winsomely about the love of God for sinners before President Obama at the National Prayer Breakfast. If you listen to the hilarious speech, you'll actually hear President Obama laughing in the background. Since then, I've read hundreds of pages of Metaxas. Okay, I've, I've only actually read two books, but one of them, the Bonhoeffer book, is over 600 pages long. And in his book, this is actually my own personal copy, American Grace, Metaxas beautifully describes William Wilberforce's affection for Psalm 119, a psalm that surely gave ballast to the ship of his soul in the sea of troubles he faced in his fight against the slave trade. I was so touched that I thought that I would start memorizing Psalm 119. And I did. Start. I memorized the first six verses. Those who know Psalm 119 know that it's 176 verses, so you do the math. I, I have some way to go. Now, David French, I, I read in his National Review days, and he's now in the dispatch. The dispatch? Yes, the dispatch. When we had him here at JBU last fall to speak on another issue before the dispatch's launch, I talked to him about his new great adventure. And I said I'd become a subscriber in his return to campus this week, as well as a 30-day trial to the dispatch on offer this week, gave me ample reason to fulfill that obligation. So subscribe to the dispatch today, just like I did. Now, in addition to his writing, French has served as a lawyer on First Amendment issues, and he's also served our country in the U.S. Army JAG Corps. Both our speakers tonight have my respect. I enjoy reading them, but they also do something that is very difficult to do in this, a most contentious age. They give voice to their opinions, and then they have the audacity to defend them. Now, some of you have written to me taking issue with one of our speakers, Eric Metaxas. You've told me that you think his opinions are harmful or personally injurious. And I want to say here at the start that I find these accusations deeply unfair. Deeply unfair to David French. After all, David French has said some things that have really upset people. 
So, but our goal tonight is not to endorse particular speakers or their ideas or their actions, but to explore an interesting phenomenon, the conservative reaction to President Donald Trump. Indeed, Metaxas and French have, they both share in a mutual commitment to the conservative intellectual tradition. And this is what makes tonight so interesting. They agree on many first principles, yet there is real and sincere disagreement about an important application of those principles. Well, why would the Center for Faith and Flourishing host an event like this one? I'll tell you why. Because John Brown University is a university. And this kind of open debate about contentious issues is what a university is for. You wouldn't know that by looking at many of the universities across the country. You couldn't host an event like this one at Eric Metaxas's alma mater, Yale University, nor at Harvard, where David French studied law. But JBU has a professor crazy enough to host an event like this one, and more importantly, JBU has an administration that is committed to free speech. And if you like, if you like what you see and hear tonight, please contact me via our website, faithandflourishing.org, to support our efforts. If you don't like what you see and hear tonight, please contact our center's assistant director, Dan Bennett, who's also a political scientist here at, at JBU. I would like your money. Dan can take your complaints. Well, enough from me. It's time to begin. Each speaker will make his case in turn. We'll start with David French. There will be an opportunity for five-minute rebuttals, some Q&A from me and my colleague Dan, and finally some Q&A from you. In the age of the dread coronavirus, we are using Slido, a Q&A app, to get questions served to me and to Dan that we'll pass along to our speakers. You can download it on your smartphone or open it up in your browser at sli.do. And when you're there, you can enter the event code P396. Now, don't panic about the technology. We'll figure it out and I'll say something about the technology side of things again before Dan and I ask David and Eric some questions. Well, one last thing. We are Christians who are talking about voting for Trump or not. And so I think it's appropriate for us to pray. Let's do so now. Let's pray. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the one true God, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting always and forever love. We thank you that you have blessed us with the resources, the money to bring people to campus, that you've given us technology and support to broadcast it across the country and across campus. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that all that we do and say, that our hearts and minds would glorify the Lord Jesus, that we would be friendly and happy that we be kind and gracious. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, over to David French. Well, thank you all very much for uh, hosting me. This is the first ever social distance sellout crowd I've ever <laughs> seen. And I gotta say it's a little depressing, but I'm very, very thankful that everybody is here. Um, let, me, let me begin with 
a little walk back into the not-so-distant past that, as I can see a few faces in the crowd, will probably remember, not the students, but uh, some of the professors and administrators. And that walk back into the not-so-distant past is the year 1998. Those of you who remember that year will remember it's notable for a couple of things. The American economy was booming, job creation and, job and, and economic growth during the Clinton years were at an incredible rate. They were the, most, the highest rate in modern times, uh, far higher than, for example, the Trump administration before the pandemic, far higher than the Obama administration, far higher than the Bush administration. The Cold War was over, there was peace, there was prosperity. But the president was gravely morally deficient in many ways gravely morally deficient. He had an affair with an intern in the White House, lied about it under oath, tried to obstruct justice about this affair. So what were we going to do about it as a Christian people? As a Christian people, how are we going to use our moral voice, our moral witness to the world? Well, one of the ways that we used our moral voice and our moral witness is we loudly proclaimed the importance of character and leaders. And we didn't just do it as a matter of political expediency. We tied it to scripture and to deep theological truth. I'm sure there are members of the Southern Baptist Convention in this room and members of the, and you might remember that in 1998, the Southern Baptist Convention introduced a resolution on the character of public officials. And one of the clauses in that resolution said that tolerance of serious wrong by public officials sears the conscience of a culture. It spawns immorality and surely will result in God's judgment. A generation of white evangelicals enthusiastically looked at that and said, amen, brother. Absolutely, this is absolute common sense. A shorthand version of this is character is destiny. And for a very long time, one of the good things about the conservative evangelical movement is if you polled conservative evangelicals and you polled the nation, every strand or strain of religion or non-religion, you know the community of people who were most likely to say that character mattered in government and in government officials, that was going to be American evangelicals. Currently, American evangelicals are now, according to the most recent polls, the community of people least likely to say that character matters in government. What happened? Was it a theological revolution? Was it a new reading of scripture accompanied by copious apologies to Bill Clinton? As Al Mohler promised, it's, he said if he ever supported Donald Trump, he'd apologize to Bill Clinton. No, it was nothing like that. It was nothing like that. It turned out, y'all, that the commitment to character and leadership, which was grounded in truth in 1998, was grounded in something else that was even more powerful than truth to an awful lot of Christians, and that was partisanship. When it came time to carry a cost to a commitment of character, Christian conservatives deserted the field. Now, the problem was when they deserted the field, they didn't change the underlying theological truths that they articulated in 1998. Indeed, they could not change the underlying theological truths in 1998 because those truths weren't up to them. And some of the core truths here, if you're going to boil down what we're talking about, it is character matters. Not only does character matters, but in many ways, character is destiny. And look, if you look at the United States of America right now, things are not good. On almost every level, things are not good. We, 
the people of Jesus Christ helped sow the wind by bringing it using the an awesome power of the most powerful faction of the most powerful political party in the world to bring Donald Trump into the office of the president of the United States, a man who is manifestly cruel, a man who is manifestly ignorant, a man who is manifestly a liar, a man who is manifestly incompetent, and a man who manifestly hates many of his fellow citizens, brought him into the most powerful office in the land, and exactly what you would expect has happened. When confronted with an enormous challenge of a pandemic, one that has brought many world leaders to despair in how to handle it, did he face it directly and level with the American people about what we we're about to face and bring to bear the best knowledge and the best resources to prepare us to deal with this thing? No, he did not. He misled us as he has misled us so many times, saying things like when he knew better, when the record was clear, we've got 15 cases, it's going to go down to zero. He was so careless in communicating to the American people that at the time when he had to deliver a key speech announcing the onset of this pandemic and the necessity of drastic measures to deal with it, he couldn't even get the speech right. And he misquoted his own policies causing confusion across the globe. When the George Floyd killing occurred and when the legacy of centuries of American racism began to flare across the land and his people rose up in anguish over racial divisions, he reacted like a cultural pyromaniac pouring gasoline on the flames, even to the point of where his own police officials assaulted peaceful protesters, cleared out priests from their own church so he could stand in front of a church and wave a Bible in the air for what purpose? To please you, some of you in the audience, to give you a symbol. I'm not even going into all of the legacy of the things that he has done, like paying off money to porn stars, having an administration full of criminals, many of whom are in jail right now, a chief advisor who was just recently indicted, a populist named Steve Bannon, who told the press during the Trump campaign that he wanted to turn Breitbart.com, which was allied with Trump, into a platform of the alt-right. This populist, this man of the people, arrested on a yacht of a megazillionaire for taking money from the pockets of people like y'all to build a wall. We are experiencing the fruits of a great con. We are experiencing the fruits of lies. We're experiencing the fruits of cruelty. We have a nation that is divided, we have cities on fire, and we have a president who, when he was sworn in and when he was elected, said he was going to deal with all of that, and it is much worse because a cultural pyromaniac is pouring fuel on the flames, on ancient flames and old flames of race and hate in this country, has said things that are racist, has said things that are full of hate. And again, remember, this is the person that the white conservative evangelical church put in power and stand by today. You know, look, we have scriptural commands like love your enemies, like bless those who persecute you. We are in all aspects of our life to exhibit the fruits of the spirit. But what we've done is we have hired a man to hate for us. We have hired a man to be cruel for us. And I'll tell you what, the rest of the world looks at that and what do they see? They see hypocrisy 
and they experience pain. They experience the pain of the shocking loss of now up to 200,000 Americans who've died. The excess deaths in the last six months in this country are almost 300,000. They're experiencing the pain of the scabs of racism being ripped open again. And they look at Trump and they see what he is, a cruel, hard man that Christians placed in power. You know, look, guys, we've sold our cultural witness. We've sold it for a bowl of porridge. And the bowl of porridge you're going to hear is you're going to hear the bowl of porridge is religious liberty and pro-life, is, is life and religious liberty. And those are very, very, very important values. But I've got some real talk for you. A real talk for you. In 2019, Planned Parenthood received more taxpayer funding than it has received in its entire history during the Trump administration. In 2020, the Supreme Court of the United States, eight of the nine justices, eight of the nine, including the two appointees of Trump, ruled to apply some version of the Casey standard to a Louisiana admitting privileges law. Eight of the nine affirmed some version of the Casey standard, which protects abortion rights. The only one who indicated that he would not do that and, and rejected Roe or Casey was Clarence Thomas. That's a guy who was appointed by George H.W. Bush, by the way. Religious liberty, things have been fine, but I've got news for you. They've been fine for a long time. There, there is a 15-case a winning streak on religious liberty at the Supreme Court of the United States dating back to the Obama administration, the first Obama term. Most of those cases are won by 7-2, No matter what screaming voices on Fox News will tell you, your religious liberty does not hang in the balance. It does not. And so what we've done is we have sold America a cruel, a vicious, an incompetent man. We have violated the principles that we loudly stated in exchange for a bowl of porridge that is very small and very meager indeed. And we're going to rue the day. We are going to rue the day that we used our awesome political power to inflict malice and cruelty on the American people. That we used our awesome political power to inflict incompetence on the American people and corruption on the American people. And guess what? Probably between 70 and 80% of people, white evangelicals in this country will do it again. And I am very sorry that is about to happen. Jane, you ignorant slut. Does anybody get that reference? Nobody gets that reference. Um, David, um, thanks for, for all you say. I disagree with some of the things you say, um, I agree with a number of the things you say. Uh, the reason we're here tonight, and I want to thank John Brown University, is because we all know that the answer to everything is Jesus. We, we know that. And the difficulty, of course, is trying to figure out what that means in every different circumstance. And the Trump situation is one of the most complicated. Um, I come at it from a, from a very strange position in a way because I grew up in Queens, New York, which is where Trump uh, is from. So I feel like I understand the way he communicates, kind of like he's, he's, he's a street communicator on some level. Um, Martin Luther, about whom I've written a book, was a lot like that too, and had a lot of people who criticized him for it, R rightly, rightly. Um, but, uh, 
part of my background also is that my parents are immigrants. My dad came from Greece in the mid-50s. My mom came from Germany. And my whole life, I have seen them struggle as outsiders uh, with accents. Uh, and so I, I get that. But they raised me to love America. Why? Because with all its faults, there was no other place in the world where they could find the opportunity and the freedom that they did here. And they raised me to love this country, not because it was perfect, but because it gave the greatest opportunity to the most people. So when we're talking about somebody like Donald Trump, even if everything David said was, were true, and I wouldn't say that it is, but even if it were, I would say, well, you have to deal with the, the issue that a few years ago you had to either go for Trump or you had to go for Hillary Clinton. This time you have to go uh, for Trump or whoever is going to be president on the other side. I think Joe Biden is kind of like a cardboard cutout and I don't know what's gonna happen if he were to be elected, which is one reason that I would be scared to death if he were elected. If the Joe Biden of 20 years ago were elected, that would be one thing. But I think we have to be fair and say that whatever we say about anybody, it's a choice between, between two people. Um, I don't agree that uh, Trump is cruel. Uh, I don't agree that uh, he's racist. I don't agree, you know, listen, I wrote a 300-page book praising the man who abolished the slave trade in the British Empire. I'm on the record, okay, as believing that your Christian faith would lead you uh, not to be racist and to fight racism. Uh, I wrote a 600-page book on Bonhoeffer, uh, which the central point of it is almost that Jesus was uh, not uh, a white uh, Aryan, but a Jew. Uh, and I think these things are complicated, but where we are right now is we have a choice between Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, and a Democratic Party that has drifted so far from where it was that most Democrats I know feel the party has left them. In other words, if we're talking about Joe Biden 20 years ago or 30 years ago, a lot of people would say, look, he's a centrist, he's a... But today, the Democratic Party, in a, in a funny way, because of Trump, Trump, I think, drives people crazy, and he gets them to say things that they wouldn't normally say, but they have gotten in bed with cultural Marxists, with people who will use your Christian faith and use groups who believe in virtue but they themselves don't believe in God or in any moral order. They believe in one thing. It's called power. And they believe that doing and saying anything, lying, twisting things, whatever you need to do to get power is worth it, and they will and are doing that. And when they get power, uh, they're not going to let you have forums like this, because they don't want people to hear both sides of a complicated story. Let me say something else. If somebody says they're against racism, I want to ask you, I know why I'm against it. Why are you against it? There's only one reason that I could know 
to be against racism is because God says it's wrong. Because God in the Bible says we are all made in his image. We are all equal in his sight. He died for every one of us equally. He's no respecter of persons. That's from the Bible. If you ask an atheist, if you, if you ask a cultural Marxist, most of the Antifa folks, most of the BLM folks are cultural Marxists who don't believe any of the things that we who disagree up here believe in the dignity of the individual, the sanctity of the individual, that character counts. We can talk about the details, but we believe those things. They don't. And today's Democratic Party has been so utterly, radically hijacked by those folks that I'm here to tell you, most of you are very young, I've seen a lot of stuff in my time. I have never, ever dreamt that one of our major political parties could be taken over by people like this. Never. We in America, since I've been around, have always agreed racism is disgusting and wrong. The question is, what do you do about it? We've always agreed poverty is wrong. The question is, what do you do about it? I don't know too many people who don't care about the poor and those who are struggling. And I would say that in this day and age, if you believe black lives matter, which I don't know anybody who doesn't believe black lives matter. I know people who should run from the organization called Black Lives Matter because they are cynically using that term to forward a culturally Marxist agenda, and I don't think they give a damn about black lives. I think they give a damn about power, and they will use whatever issue they can use to forward further their, their agenda. But if you and I believe that black lives matter and you care about the urban poor, I would argue you must not vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because they will usher in policies that will devastate black communities, period. Socialism doesn't work. If it did, I'd be all for it or I'd shut up about it and I'd say, let's give it a chance. It is devastating. And what you see right now happening in the United States is that There are a lot of people that don't really understand how freedom and self-government work because we haven't been teaching it in the school since the 60s. They don't really understand why socialism would be bad. Uh, They can tell you why capitalism could be bad, and so could I. But that's really, really scary to me. And whatever Trump has said or that people perceive, I mean, in this day and age, if if you're watching mainstream media, I've never seen anyone so attacked. When he hiccups, they will say it's racist or they will say the way he did it was a dog whistle to his base or whatever. So we're living in dark times where it's very, very hard for people who aren't sure what they believe to figure things out. So I look at this from a different point of view. I I guess I want to say that, for example, most people don't know this. The Republican Party was founded as the anti-slavery party. Abraham Lincoln, of course, was the candidate. The Democrats have traditionally been a racist party, but what happened to change that? So most people think, really? Really? No, it can't be, it can't be. I'll tell you what happened. Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was once the President of the United States, 
decided that he was going to sign the Civil Rights Act. Most of the Democrats fought him bitterly in Congress. Most of the Republicans were all for signing the Civil Rights Act. Did you know that? I'll bet you didn't know that. I'll bet you didn't know that the KKK was the, the muscle for the Democratic Party in the South. I bet you didn't know that. Yeah, we haven't heard that kind of stuff. These are facts. And Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, and he said, when he signed it, he understood this, what this was going to do. He said, those, when I sign this, those N-words are going to be voting for us, the Democrats, for 200 years. Now, that is a disgusting disgusting thing for a human being to think, much less to say. But I don't hear everybody quoting that. Access Hollywood didn't play that tape uh, four years ago. We need to understand that if something is going to help those who are underprivileged, I as a Christian am all for it, okay? The question is how, what's gonna work? So for 50 years, for 50 years, Democrats have had tremendous political power in the cities in this country, and their policies have ravaged black communities. Ravaged black communities. It was a great senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Democrat of New York, who said that, that it was the breakdown of the black family that we needed to address. He said that in 1965, and back then he was told, shut your mouth. We're going to get power, and we're going to figure this out. For 55 years now, the Democrats have controlled cities and have had the ability to do their thing. And in 55 years, the evidence is in. They have destroyed black communities. They have destroyed black lives. There is a reason that in the latest polling, more black Americans are going for Trump than have ever gone for any Republican president. So these are just some facts. There are many more facts to talk about. But when we're talking about Donald Trump, we have to say compared to what? One of the things we have to make absolutely clear is um, Donald Trump's not running against Bernie Sanders and the squad. Um, you hear all of this talk about socialism. You hear all of this talk about cultural Marxism. Uh, Joe Biden defeated Bernie Sanders by running against socialism. He defeated the Medicare for All plan by running against Medicare for All. Um, if you want, no one was more shocked and upset that Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination than the woke, far woke left Twitter. These are just facts. They do not feel like they are winning in the Democratic Party. There are huge numbers of progressives who are feeling like they're going to hold their nose to vote for Joe Biden. They do not view him as a cardboard cutout. In fact, he's rejected, and his team has rejected some of their most radical uh, elements of the far woke left that Eric talks quite a bit about. Defund the police, Biden has rejected that. Um, many of the Medicare for all, Biden has rejected that. So let's just be clear about who's for what and who's done what. And one of the things that I think is very disrespectful, and this is something that I used to do uh, earlier in my conservative days, was to say, well, look, the Democrats have not been good for black America. They've been terrible for black America, which is in essence an argument akin to saying, well, 85 to 90% of black Americans, depending on 
the presidential race are voting against their interests. What an extraordinarily condescending thing to say to a sophisticated community of American adults who are often quite aware of the policies that they live in, they're quite aware of the policies that the competing parties advance. And in 1964, one of the reasons why black Americans rejected the Republican Party was, guess what, there was a name that Eric did not mention, that name was Barry Goldwater. He was the Republican nominee for President of the United States. And what did he do? He opposed the Civil Rights Act. He opposed it. Now, the Civil Rights Act, y'all, was one of the most important pieces of legislation in the entire history of the United States of America for this reason. Prior to the signing of the Civil Rights Act, for 345 years, Race discrimination was legal in the United States of America and enforced by violence. When the Republican nominee, now he had libertarian reasons for not doing it, but to say that black Americans don't understand their own interests. Look, I've been around long enough. I've read uh, left-wing books like What's the Matter with Kansas? Condescending to white Christian Americans in prior years. Is it all they do is they vote against their interests. I, you know, I tend to trust communities of Americans that they uh, are, especially when we're dealing with 50-year trends, voting in their interest. I respect them enough to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And when I see the Trump administration, I understand why, again, overwhelming percentages of black Americans are going to reject Donald Trump. I just said something about the alt-right. Steve Bannon was the campaign CEO of the Trump campaign. And he had said he wanted his publication to be the platform of the alt-right. Do y'all know what the alt-right is? It's an explicit white nationalist, white supremacist, turned out to be at first mainly online, but filtered offline and turned quite violent and deadly, explicitly racist, explicitly white nationalist. And the campaign CEO and chief strategist early in the Trump administration said, I want my publication to be the platform for the alt-right. That's scary stuff, y'all. That is terrible stuff. And notice one of the things you did not hear very much from Eric in his rebuttal was about policies, policies that actually would help marginalized Americans. Well, one of the things that we know has utterly failed marginalized Americans is this administration's uh, in many ways, character incompetence driven, uh, poor character and incompetence driven failure to respond to the coronavirus epidemic, which has disproportionately slammed marginalized communities in the United States of America. We have seen a problem with police brutality in this country with our own eyes. And do you know who has said there is a no-go to the number one reform that could help assist people receive some basic justice when their civil rights are violated by a repeal of qualified immunity? This administration, it's a no-go. It's a no-go. If your civil rights are violated by police, if your civil rights are actually violated by police, this is a violation of the Bill of Rights. This is a violation of the American Social Compact. This government is preserving in place a power structure that denies people the, even the opportunity to recover damages. There's a case of a guy named Andrew Scott down south. He's playing video games at about one or two in the morning in his house. 
Police show up at the wrong door. They don't have their lights on. They don't identify themselves. They pound on his door, believing that he's somebody else that they're looking for. They're at the wrong door. They don't have their lights on. They don't identify themselves as police. Andrew is a little scared, so he picks up his gun to answer the door, and he's shot dead within two seconds. Can't even recover damages. His estate can't because of this doctrine that's held in place. That's just one example. Look, here's what we do now in this, in this political environment. What we do is we say to Christians, even if, you know, look, it, it, the idea that Donald Trump is not a cruel man is rebutted in any given day by his Twitter feed. The idea that Donald Trump has not said racist things is rebutted by the words out of his own mouth. He said a, a Mexican-American judge couldn't even rule for on one of his cases. Why? Because of his ethnic heritage. That's textbook, y'all. You don't have to read between the lines. There's no dog whistles here. And we, the people of God, are saying, our man, that's our man. That's our man. And then some are really actually, let's be honest, a lot of Christians like his fighting. They like it because he's hitting the right people in the mouth. We see that. Y'all all see that. We got to be honest here. A lot of other Christians hold their nose. Why do they hold their nose? It's fear. It's fear. It's fear. America will be over. We'll be socialist. Biden is not a socialist. Biden's a cardboard cutout, really. I mean, he, he defeated the far left. He confronted the far left, but he's a cardboard cutout. How do you know? Well, he's old and he has gaffes. Well, I haven't seen a gaffe from Biden like the gaffe of completely misreading one of the most important policy speeches of your life on live television causing chaos across Western Europe. That's a gaffe. I've never seen one like that. But again, it's constant. It's fear. It's fear. It's fear. You compromise on the values that you have articulated as eternal and important and unconditional compromise because of fear, cultural Marxism, socialism. These things are not on the ballot and your opportunity to impose these things do not end when the presidential election ends. Fear, like the idea that we couldn't have a meeting like this if Joe Biden is president, that's completely false. I litigated in college campuses across the country throughout the entirety of the Obama administration. And I can't think of a single case, and this was when the judiciary was dominated by Obama appointees and Clinton appointees, I can't think of a single case where we didn't get relief. A single case where we didn't get relief in our cases at the Alliance Defending Freedom Center for Academic Freedom. It's fear, it's fear. If you lose, you can't have this gathering, that's absurd. We'll have this gather, we could have this gathering one year later, six months later, three years later, seventh year into Joe Biden's second term if he wins one. We could have this gathering. Our rights and our liberties are not that fragile, y'all. They're not. I've been in the front lines of courtrooms. I've been in the front lines of, of litigation for years, for 25 years. I know which rights are fragile. I know which rights are not fragile. And I know that right now in the United States of America, even by the last year of the Obama administration, our First Amendment rights were stronger and more secure than they'd been in any part of the history of the United States of America. But you know what? Just saying, hey, I think on this policy, Biden would be worse. Um, and on this policy, Trump might be better. That doesn't, it's not enough to get you over the hump of saying, I'm going to support a liar who paid off porn stars, who says racist things, who retweets white, white nationalists, 
who failed the American people in a coronavirus epidemic, who pours fuel on the gasoline of culture war. See, that's not enough. This policy better, that policy better is not enough to get you over that hump of violating the principles you've articulated so thoroughly and completely. Instead, we have to create a sense of existential threat in the people of God. The last community in the United States who should feel a sense of existential threat. That's the last community. I you know, remember Hezekiah facing the Assyrian Empire. You know, he had advisors saying, go down to Egypt, ally with Egypt to save the tiny little kingdom of Judah from the marauding Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah says, no, trust in the Lord. The Lord will preserve his people. So Hezekiah does the thing that's contrary to all human wisdom. He doesn't go down to Egypt. He doesn't seek out the chariots. He trusts in the Lord his God to preserve his people. And guess what? The Lord came through. You learn that from elementary school in Sunday school. The Lord comes through for his people. The Lord protects his people. No force on this earth can withstand the Lord in defense of his people. But I guess Hezekiah never confronted the Joe Biden campaign or the Hillary Clinton campaign, which must be incredibly more intimidating than the Assyrian army. Because then it's not just we go down to Egypt, we go down to the real estate developer who has been accused by more than a dozen women of sexual assault and has bragged about grabbing women by the genitals. That's the guy. Do you understand why that makes no sense to a world that has heard our moral witness for years before? Do you not understand how that so deeply and gravely violates that moral witness? And our justification is we're so scared of you that we need Donald Trump to protect us. That's sad, y'all. That is sad. I don't need Donald Trump for anything, much less to protect one ounce of my liberty in this United States of America. What I need is for a church to be confident in its faith and in its witness and to remember when it comes even to politics and even to the dreaded, scary, terrifying Joe Biden that God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power and love and of sound mind. The, David, the way you use uh, phrases, they become cliches sometimes. In other words, what you just said quoting scripture becomes meaningless in the context of how somebody's faith plays out in public policy, in geopolitical strategy. If we are all believing, okay, oh, that the Lord's going to protect me, the Lord's going to protect me, we should all move to North Korea tomorrow, right? Why shouldn't we, why would we be afraid to go? The actual argument that I made Let's deal with the actual argument I made. I, there was no argument. There were 10 hyperbole. arguments, and I'm going to try, to, I'm gonna try to, to answer some of them because obviously we don't have the time here. And by the way, timekeepers, you get an F. Um, <laughs> but honestly, you're talking about so many different kinds of things, and it's a kind of sophistry. I know you believe what you're saying, but the point is that if you... First of all, let's deal with Joe Biden, okay? Joe Biden... The idea that they would put this man forward at this point is so cynical and horrific, and the idea that he, he beat Bernie Sanders is a joke. Joe Biden will do anything and say 
anything to get elected. So you want to talk about character? He has 50 years as a career politician. He has changed his mind on almost everything. He has plagiarized tons of times. He's famous for being a plagiarizer. And any day that Donald Trump says something interesting, the next day Joe Biden says it. So this is very complicated. So the idea that Trump is a liar, let's talk about who's a liar. Who's the president that said, if you like your policy, you can keep it? I can't remember who said that. Because he was a liar, right? Or was that the only time he lied? It was kind of a major thing, infected millions of Americans, and it was a lie. Um, read my lips, no new taxes. That was George H.W. Bush. That was a lie. Presidents have said things that are wildly, openly untrue that we know are lies. We still don't call them liars, right? We we try to say, well, that was a lie, but that doesn't mean everything Barack Obama said was a lie, and he's not a liar. But the point is, with Trump, the gloves are off, and we have to go on and on and on about, you know, how he's the worst person who ever lived. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Joe Biden not only is a career politician who has had 50 years to solve all the problems that he now magically says he has the answers to, he has done Nothing, except frankly, and this is the old canard, he's lined his own pockets. He's, he's the perfect example of what the founders did not want, which is a career politician who over the decades accrues more and more power by being part of the system, eventually he becomes vice president, he gets to fly over to China and Ukraine on Air Force Two and take his family and, and, and get incredible wealth and incredible power for his family as a result of that. That is classic career politician stuff. You want, you want to know what corruption is? That's corruption. That is corruption. Character counts. That is a lack of character. And that affects tons of people, okay? China, Donald Trump has been calling out China for 40 years. He's been on the record saying that we, the Americans, are getting taken to the cleaners by China. We need to deal with it. We need to deal with it. People on the left and people on the right both got it wrong, okay? Both got China wrong. The people on the right, the conservatives who worship the free market like some kind of a, a deity, they believed like, oh, if we introduce the free market to China, they're all going to become Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson because we forgot about something called virtue. We forgot about something called character. We forgot that communists will do any damn thing to get power and wealth, and they will then use it against their own citizens, especially Christians, you want to talk about racism? Especially Uyghur Muslims who are in concentration camps, who are being used for slave labor. Are, we're going to do business with a power that does those kinds of things, slave labor. Nike and the NBA are making billions off of companies, off of slave labor that is racist slave labor, okay? In other words, these are Uyghur Muslims who aren't Chinese enough for the Chinese. They have their stupid little, Chi their little Muslim faith. That's not going to fly in China. They don't believe in religious liberty. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had a leader in America who stood up to that, who spoke out about those kinds of excesses? Well, we have that in Donald Trump, and you can say what you want about him, but the idea that we have had Republican 
and Democrat presidents who have said nothing to China, who have allowed this to go on. And as for our precious relationship with NATO, I can't imagine why people are more upset about upsetting Angela Merkel, okay, or Macron, than they are about accepting, uh, upsetting the American working people who have to fight these wars and have to be stationed in places where they have no business being. I want to talk about policies that Trump has enacted. Trump has put in place more serious Christians in his administration, okay? Have you heard of Ben Carson? Okay, let's just talk about Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos is fighting for school choice. If you are a living in an urban community, the teachers unions, which are in the pocket of the Democrats, will force you to send your kid to their crummy, broken public school. They don't want you to have a choice. They don't want you to be able to send your little black child to that good school. No, you have no choice in that matter. And by the way, when your kid goes to that public school, they're going to get propagandized, okay, with the most leftist nonsense that has no business being taught in schools. You want to teach it at home? Teach it at home. But it has no business being paid for with tax dollars. School choice is a gigantic issue for minorities in this country, and it is one reason to praise Donald Trump and to praise Betsy DeVos, who is the Secretary of Education. Trump has given more money than anybody to historically black colleges. Did you read that on the front page of the New York Times? No. They don't report on anything like that. Criminal justice reform? Do you understand that that was a bipartisan thing and that Donald Trump brought about criminal justice reform? If you watched any part of the Republican National Convention, you saw tons of examples of black people thanking this president for doing stuff that no one else did. Definitely Barack Obama didn't do it and definitely his vice president didn't do it. And if you want to talk about a centrist, he would appoint, Joe Biden would appoint Beto O'Rourke to take away your guns. So he is no centrist, okay? He would work closely with AOC on the Green New Deal, which will gut the American economy. And you know what happens when you gut the American economy? You know who suffers the most? Poor black Americans, minorities, in urban areas, they suffer the most when you destroy the economy for some crazy idea that AOC, who was a bartender 15 minutes ago, has brought into the center of American uh, culture. And by the way, if you think, and I say this again, if, if, if Joe Biden were the Joe Biden of 30 years ago, well, that's somebody to work with. But he and Nancy Pelosi have proved they do not have the guts to stand up to the super radical left, which is going to destroy our economy if we let them, and who's going to suffer the most? Black Americans. That is a fact, and if you want to talk about the policies, why did blacks for 50-something years vote for the Democratic Party? It's very simple, because they were lied to over and over and over again, and because the Democrats took them for granted and said, where are they going to go? We know they're going to vote for us. Well, I think a lot of them are waking up, and they're saying, we've been suckers for way too long, and we're not going to put up with it anymore. And as Trump said, what have you got to lose? Exactly. What have you, how great has it been for 55 years under the Democrats? So... There's no way I can touch on every point David made, but I, I think these things need to be said and these things are not being heard generally. So I thought I should say them. Thank you. Thank you both. We are uh, now going to unmask, if you haven't already, 
because we're like 12 feet apart. If you're watching us via video, it looks like we're snuggled up together, but I promise we are not. So uh, just a reminder that go to Slido, download the app, or go to sli.do, and we are P396. We've got a lot of questions that are populating my iPad. But first, we'll have some opportunity for me and Dan to ask questions and then for us all to interact. And I'm gonna turn it over to Dan. Remember, your complaints go to Dan, and, but he does get to ask the first question. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, thank you both uh, for being here tonight. Uh, for those on campus, if you're interested in further discussion about these ideas, uh, thoughts, topics exchanged tonight before the event uh, as well, I uh, hope you come to a talkback uh, discussion and uh, session that we're having tomorrow night at uh, 7 p.m. in the cathedral. So uh, Dr. Tricia Posey will be there, myself will be there, Trevor Magnus will be there as well from Residence Life. Hope you can join us for that. Eric, I have a question for you first. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of your uh, first 10 minutes that especially at an institution like JBU, we know Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is, is the ultimate answer here. I joke with my classes that if you answer Jesus to a test question, you get half credit, right? I mean, it's like Sunday school almost. Um, in this era of increasingly divided and inflammatory rhetoric uh, from people serving in government, from people outside government, including Donald Trump, some of his rhetoric, um, and even violence uh, from folks on the left, some on the right as well, do you think Christians should embrace hitting back in politics in order to achieve important goals like you've discussed, or should our Christian witness adopt a different posture in our political engagement? Well, that's an extremely vague question. You have to be specific. I mean, if somebody is physically threatening my wife, might I throw a punch at him? <laughs> I might. I might. Uh, if somebody is coming at us with a battleship, should we fight them with weapons? Yes, of course we should. The context is, is everything. But the idea, listen, the, the, the radical Marxist left, okay, BLM, who don't give a damn about blacks in case you're scoring, if you forget to take that note, and Antifa have been unbelievably, viciously violent and sick when you see it happening. But the real problem is how is it possible that Democratic mayors and governors have given them a pass. In other words, if you want justice in America, you don't let that happen. And I really believe the Democratic Party of 15 years ago would have never let that happen. So to see that kind of violence and looting in the streets, all the black people I know denounce it and are sickened by it. But you don't hear about that on the news. On the news, you just hear that, you know, you're, you're gonna hear from, from one of the looters. So, the idea that Christians are supposed to turn the other cheek, obviously we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but then you gotta figure out what does that mean? When David killed Goliath, he didn't say, oh, bummer, I need to repent, ask you know, forgiveness from Goliath's family. In other words, you need context. Bonhoeffer, my hero, got involved in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. This is not about advocating violence, it's about understanding things and having the wisdom to know what is going on. But, I mean, the general question, I mean, of course not. Christians are called to a different standard, and we should uh, uh, avoid that at, at all costs and denounce it at all costs. I mean, I, I can't imagine that anybody would disagree with that. 
my question, just in terms of uh, fair and balanced, you decide, am I going to get sued for that? But anyway, uh, David, my question is for you, just to kind of uh, balance things out here. One of the things that struck me was you were advocating a Christian concern for evangelical witness. Why should I be concerned about the reputation of a voting block? So if, if, if sociologists say these are evangelicals and they're doing one thing or another, when I go into the voting booth, shouldn't I vote my conscience rather than a concern for the reputation of people considered an aggregate? Uh, well, you know, I think that you're talking about a, a voting block is not the right way to refer to the church, okay? A voting block might be um, like the Oil and Gas Association and all of the people that work for it. That's a voting block where they're going to come in and they're going to say, you know, look, there's a, I'm looking at these candidates and who's going to help protect shale oil, man, you know, shale oil mining in the, North, in the Northwest, Upper Midwest. Okay, you're going to vote for that. Nobody looks at like the Oil and Gas Association and says, you have a larger role of salt and light to a nation and a people and a world. So every single aspect of your Christian, of yourself should be infused with your Christian witness, including, including the political side of your life. And the problem you have is, look, we got a, we got a world where an increasing number of people are not affiliating with any church at all. They're not affiliating with any faith at all. Many of them are putting politics in the place of religion. That's how important politics is them. It's mm -hmm. filling that hole in their heart in the place of religion. So the, your main in, interaction for millions of Christians, your main interaction with them as a body of Christ is in the political sphere. They're not living next to you. They're not seeing you at a soup kitchen. They don't know how nice you are to your wife. You know, they don't see how great a dad you are. I'm, and, a, very, I'm a very good dad. And you can sit there and you can say all day long, I'm a great person, y'all. I'm honest in my business. I'm good to my wife. I give to my church. I've been on foreign missions. You have no idea how kind I am. Don't judge me by the fact that I hired a man to hate you. Because that is what the Donald Trump persona is. He fights for me. How does he fight? He fights through cruelty. He fights through deception. He fights through malice. He fights through lies. And we're the ones who put him there. The most powerful voting block of the most powerful political party of the United States is the people of the living God. And what we say is... Well, you know, all of those things that we said for years and years and years about the value of virtue and leaders and character and leaders, it doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't apply anymore. And I'm sorry, I'm not sitting there saying that the world has to love us. Christ says the world's going to hate us. But what's it going to hate us for? Is it going to hate us for following Christ or is it going to hate us for doing bad things? And is it going to hate us because we've put a malicious man in charge of the country who delights in division? People who are around him, General, General Mattis, it's really amazing how the way the whole system works. On the one hand, people say, look, Donald Trump brought in General Mattis. He's not as bad as I thought. And I was along the ride for that. I was very happy to see General Mattis. But then as soon as General Mattis, a man of, of, who has had unimpeachable public, record of public service, says, he intentionally tries to divide Americans. Then when people get mad at General Mattis, 
They don't believe the words of people who've served around Donald Trump who are waving the alarm bell. And the problem is, um, you know, if, if we have had so many church scandals. If somebody's mad at us about our scandals, that's fair. If somebody's mad at us because we serve Jesus Christ and we have a particular uh, view of, for example, human sexuality, I'm willing to bear that anger. But I'm very concerned about anger that has directed us because we have elevated hateful people to run this country. That is justified anger. That is something we all should be concerned about. That is something that we should be grieved about. If somebody's mad at us for our own, our own error, we should absorb that, listen to that, and repent for it. Eric, did you, I said that you were about to speak. What's that? Eric, did you want to say something? I noticed. I always want to say something. I don't know if you want me to say that or if you want to ask me another question. I mean, that's... Um... Why don't we do a, uh, a quick question for both of you, and then Great we'll idea. turn to some questions from the sure. audience. We got a lot coming in. Yeah, we do. So um, I'll pose it to, to David first, and then Eric. It's basically the same question with a slight, uh, slight tweak. So David, is there anything Donald Trump could realistically do between now and the election to earn your vote? And Eric, is there anything Donald Trump could realistically do between now and the election to lose your vote? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I've heard a lot of evangelicals compare Trump to King David, which I find rather amusing because there's a serious lack of repentance in Donald Trump, um, uh, an overwhelming pride in Donald Trump. There's nothing like the, uh, the, the shock and pain and horror that you saw from publicly from David when his sin was called out by Nathan. And I guess that, let me go with the analogy to King David. If you saw Donald Trump responding to his sin and his malice and his cruelty the way King David responded to his sin and his malice and his cruelty, that would give me pause. But I see him doing nothing but doubling down on those things. How about you, Eric? Well, I think comparing him to, to David, Christians who've said that are wrong, he's a Cyrus. I just want to hang that out there. Just so Christians should know that he's a, he's a type of Cyrus, not a, not a David. In some circles, that would get a laugh, but obviously, there's not enough Pentecostal prophetic types in the room, sorry. <laughs> um, well, anything that, that he could do, yeah, if he had sexual relations with an intern in the Oval Office, I would say he should get out. Um, JFK <laughs> routinely brought prostitutes into the White House while he was president. LBJ did nasty things in the White House. Bill Clinton took advantage of a 22-year-old intern while he was the President of the United States in the White House, not 15 years before he got to the White House. So I believe that based on the actions of Donald Trump, that he's not the man that he was 15 years ago. And if he did that kind of thing, I would denounce it, I would scream it, just as I did when Bill Clinton did it and disgraced the people's house with, uh, with, his, with his behavior, yeah. We have a lot of questions, and what's great about Slido is that you can vote them up, and so then they really quickly populate to me. Right now, uh, one of the top questions is for David French. What are your thoughts on the 90s era crime bill that Biden sponsored that according to the questioner, ravaged black communities, or Kamala Harris, who, according to the questioner, ruthlessly pursued blacks as attorney general? Yeah, so I think that one of the great tragedies of American life is that the enormous crime wave of the 1980s that moved into the early 90s was met with by a bipartisan response 
thoroughly bipartisan response that resulted in the problem of mass incarceration that we have now. And one of the things that you have to do, the longer, when you, when you look at cultural phenomenon and when you look at the consequences of policies, you have to live and learn. So for example, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, crime in the United States was at a rate that we don't even recognize right now. It's incredibly high. So you had, every, you had everyone from the Republicans to the Congressional Black Caucus calling for tougher measures, calling for tougher measures. And it turns out that the United States of America at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level brought the hammer down way too hard, way too hard. And now it's got to change. It's got to live and learn. It's got to end the, ch the crisis of mass incarceration. You know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the problems of family formation, mass incarceration, especially in marginalized and poor communities, mass incarceration is a real factor in the ability of people to form families. For a, a, uh, for a man who's been in prison to find a job and have a stable enough life to support a family is a huge challenge. We have to deal with it. So I think that, that if you're going to look back 20, 30 years and say, who was tough on crime in, American, in the mainstream of American politics, the answer is everybody. That was the answer. Now what you have to say is, what do we do now? And, and the, I think that the conservative movement has done some of its best work in the, uh, in the states in dealing with mass incarceration. I think that the First Step Act was a very good thing the Trump administration did, but the, the, the name there is key, first, first. There's gotta be a second step and there's gotta be a third step and there also has to be uh, policing reform as well. And that's an incredibly material part of that. So yeah, do I believe that some of Biden's uh, policies in the 1990s were misguided? Yeah, I was alive in the 1990s and guess what I, Bill, I supported. I supported the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act and other things that were part of the crime bill. And I honestly look back at that and say, I was part of a United States of America that put the hammer down way too hard in response to a crime wave that was alarming people on a bipartisan basis. And what can we do? We can't unring that bell. We have to turn the corner. And I think it's one of the most promising bipartisan moves in all of the United States of America is a joint conservative progressive effort to uh, end mass incarceration. This feels like a soft pitch over home plate for Eric Metaxas but it is getting so many likes from people all over the place that I, I feel beholden to ask it. And you'll like the question. Um, you give a lot of reasons to vote against someone Biden, but you don't give reasons to vote for Trump. Why should someone vote for Trump? In your remarks to, to responding to David, you, you mentioned the good that he's done for the black community, but could you give the, as you did in the January uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed, could you give the Christian case for Trump? Well, the most important thing about Trump, I mean, his biggest qualification to be president is the fact that he's not Joe Biden. <laughs> That's a big qualification. <laughs> if there were somebody on the other side uh, who was not uh, Joe Biden, you know, we can have a conversation. I think that Trump speaks for the average American, the working class American. And the cultural elites are offended. They're offended that they have a man who doesn't bow to them, but goes straight over their heads, usually with Twitter, to the American people.
people and is fighting for the American people. And no, I don't think he's fighting dirty. I think he's making great deals. Uh, but the idea, for example, that he is using his business genius to fight against the demons in China who have not just exploited this country, but who have brutally, brutally oppressed their own 1.3 billion people. No other president dealt with that. Why is he dealing with it? I think it's because he is a great man. He actually gives a darn about the farmers in this country. He gives a darn about what's fair, and he sees that our leadership class, Democrats and Republicans, have allowed China to get away with murder very literally, very often, and metaphorically, and he has fought against that. And, but the idea to me, you know, we're not talking about the Ukraine, we're talking about China. There is no question that we have no bigger issue on the globe than how do we deal with China, and here you have a guy who's been talking about it for almost 40 years. That is just unbelievable to me that nobody else is talking about it. Joe Biden, you know, is, he is asleep at the wheel on this. He has been part of the, the bipartisan ruling class that has paid, played patty cake with the Chinese leadership and with the leadership in other countries around the world effectively to line their own Pockets. Now, I'm not going to suggest that it's only because of that, but it is an endemic, systemic corruption that has neutralized them and that has made them not deal with something which is an, an existential threat to the whole world order, okay? We're talking about Lincoln saying that America is the last best hope of Earth, okay? Now, we know Jesus is really the last best, but he was speaking geopolitically. He saw that America is the only country that stands for liberty, for self-government, for giving opportunity to everybody. And by the way, when he says make America great or, or put America first, the idea is if we are strong, if we are wealthy, we can bless the rest of the world. We, it, it, this is not so that we can get rich. In other words, the reason as a Christian, I believe, I mean, I write about it in my book, If You Can Keep It. If, if you believe what the scripture says, we are blessed to be a blessing. Anytime anyone is blessed, you're blessed by God so that you can bless those who are not blessed. And the United States has done that dramatically for a long time. And under a Biden administration with the, the woke maniacs that he would appoint, uh, you would destroy American wealth and opportunity and the engine uh, of, of, of capitalism. And people around the world would suffer. And China would very happily step in and take over wherever they could. So that, that is one reason that is so huge and people don't talk about it. I, I find it amazing. And let's talk about character. He, every president said they would put the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. None of them did it. Why? Because they did not have political courage. Trump has political courage. Some people characterize him as a, a fighter. Well, I mean, <laughs> to do what you said you're going to do 
That is called character. Why did he do that when everybody told him not to do it? You know, uh, people I'm sure like General Mattis told him not to do it. Just like everybody told all the career politicians uh, in Foggy Bottom and onward, they all said to Reagan, you cannot say this line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Don't you understand? You can't say that. And he said, I am going to say it. And he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And the demons trembled when he said that, because that's called leadership. And a couple of years later, we see the fall of the Soviet Union and most of the Eastern Bloc and the world changed. That is leadership. And, and the career politicians in, in, in places like Foggy Bottom and uh, in the Pentagon and so on and so forth, sometimes they don't see what a great leader sees. And that's why the American people did not elect them president. They elected Trump president. And the disdain for Trump, part of it that rankles me, is it is a clear disdain for the American people. Who elected him? The American people, not his base. The American people elected him. And every four years we elect somebody and then we respect that because we respect the way that we have done business over all of these centuries now, that we have a respect for the choice of the American people, and four years later, we get to do it again. And we, we have not ever seen this kind of inability to deal with what the voters said. And by the way, the way Trump has been attacked and the coup against him from people like Comey and Clapper and Brennan, it is so scandalous. It's amazing we haven't mentioned it tonight. It is so scandalous, so un-American, so disgusting that people would thumb their noses at the American voter and say, you go to hell, we know better, we're gonna take him out, we're gonna do what's needed to take him out. By the grace of God, they did not take him out, and I hope he gets a second term so he can do what he should have been able to do in his first term. All right, so I'm going to... I've got to respond to some of that. Uh, can we just get over the idea that he is some big, some big warrior against China? He has flattered the Chinese leadership explicitly. We have reports from John Bolton that he was endorsed, rather than rattle the cages about the genocide and the concentration camps with the Uyghurs, he didn't want to rattle the cages there to preserve his big deal that he was going to have with China. There's been a crackdown on Hong Kong under his watch. This is a man who has flattered the leader of China during this process. Some warrior against China, give me a break. This is a guy who has flattered some of the worst dictators on the planet. David, Kim Jong Un. Have it both ways. Kim it, Jong Un. Everybody says he's not diplomatic, Kim and then when he's diplomatic, he you criticize him. That is called being diplomatic. No, it's called being a patsy for authoritarians. He flatters Vladimir Putin. He flatters Kim Jong Un. He flatters Chairman Xi. The results in China and the oppression in China is not better because of Donald Trump. It it has advanced in spite of bipartisan American revulsion at it. This idea that he's some warrior against China is pure fiction. He has sitting there flattering one of the worst dictators in the world. He, as if Bolton's book is to be believed, gave tacit permission for the genocide that is going on in the Uyghurs. I mean, look, we cannot create a false vision of who Donald Trump is and then defend that false vision. His record in confronting authoritarians around the world is just miserable. He has, he, you know, what he did to abandon until a bipartisan revulsion at it began to reverse American policy, abandoning Kurdish allies in northern Syria in the face of, again, another authoritarian, Recep Erdogan of Turkey. 
unbelievable. This, not, this is a man who has kowtowed before some of the worst people in the world. And it is shameful, as an American, it is shameful for me to watch these words of praise flowing forth for some of the worst people. I have never seen anything like that. Never seen anything well, like I that. Well, I don't it expect not... better from, from people who lead China, but I do expect better from the people who have led our CIA and our FBI. And, and if and he... You, you, if had, he won... you had a moment, like, now let's, you know, here's what I, uh, here's what I find. But what do you say here's about what that? I have Are you not Here's what I find absurd and, absurd and embarrassing and ridiculous. You want to talk about Russia. The Trump campaign intentionally met with Russian lawyer with the attempt, for the attempt to gain information on the Hillary Clinton campaign from the Russian government. That was the explicit intent of the Trump campaign. His son, his son-in-law, his campaign chair. His campaign chair was in constant contact with a Russian intelligent agent during the campaign, providing confidential campaign information. His campaign was reaching out to Roger Stone to get Roger Stone to get advance warning from WikiLeaks for future releases. His family and his business was attempting to work a multi-hundred million dollar business deal in Russia and his people, including his lawyer, lied about it to the American people and lied about it to Congress. That offends me. His national security advisor was an unregistered foreign agent for the authoritarian government of Turkey, making hundreds of thousands of dollars from Turkey while he was advising the Trump campaign. That offends me as an American. His administration is full of people who have gone to prison for their corruption. That offends me as an American. The idea that he was investigated for this massive amount of criminal activity does not offend me as an American. We have, we have to get back to the question. There, there are some, some questions coming in about a, uh, an issue that I wanted to ask you about, David. Um, so in a recent article for The Dispatch, uh, you pushed back against the premise that pro-life Americans who don't vote for Donald Trump have, quote, blood on their hands, as a, as a Twitter user, I, I think, suggested. Many um, Twitter users. Many Twitter, yeah, not just one, many Twitter users. Uh, there are several questions in our queue here who are effectively asking, I can't get past the Democratic position on abortion. You know, how do you respond? And also, I think you should clarify here, because some people are, are, and I actually don't know the answer to this, uh, as a Christian, how can you defend voting for a man, Biden, who openly defends principles or issues uh, like the pro-choice position? So could you clarify, will you, like, will you be voting for Joe Biden in, in so November? I, I reject the binary choice. Okay. I, I reject the binary choice. Are you going to run again? Pardon? What do you mean you reject the binary choice? I, do, I have more than two choices on a ballot. That's, that, well, that is the only fiction that's been spoken okay. tonight. Please explain that. And, and that is fascinating that, 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 was, that you would say that since I'm going to read a ballot on November 3rd it's going to have more than two names. That, However, let me say yes. this. Let me say this. I believe that uh, a candidate should have passed two tests. Okay? Either they, if they fail either one, I'm not going to vote for them. And I'm going to tell you why, how uh, not voting for one of the two uh, major party candidates can have a real positive effect from a real-life real example. So number one test is, do you have the character that is commensurate with the office that you seek? I tend to think character is more important the higher the level of the office. I don't think the President of the United States is too important to have a high character and a high degree of competence. Uh, and so I believe the higher the office, the more, the, high, the more demanding the character test. So number one, you have to pass that. This is the 1998 statement on Christian, uh, on character in public officials. This is, what was standard Christian approach to politics before Donald Trump.
So number one, have the character commensurate. Number two, do their political values match your political values sufficiently for you to support? If they don't make both of those, I don't vote for them. And there's a recent example where the active people to not vote for one of the two major political candidates, they, the people who could not vote for a pro-abortion uh, rights candidate sat it out. Like I, in my view, support for, uh, support for overturning Roe is a necessary but not sufficient reason to vote for somebody. Roy Moore received the Republican nomination uh, in the state of Alabama. Roy Moore, even before the allegations of misconduct towards underage girls, was manifestly unfit to hold public office. One of the least ethical, more bigoted people in public, in, in, as a prominent Republican in public life. No business being a senator. But again, binary choice, binary choice. Judges, judges, judges. You don't want the pro-abortion Doug Jones to get into uh, the Senate. And so what an awful lot of Christians did is they didn't vote in the race. Roy Moore was rejected. The earth did not stop rotating on its axis. A better Republican was nominated in 2020. He's going to win. And a message has been sent to the Republican Party. Do not nominate low ethic, low character, bigoted people for public office in this state. If you do, you will not win. And so when I'm thinking about the health of a political movement, my idea is that, look, if you have a veto power as the members of the most powerful faction of the most powerful political party in the world, you could say, not in my name, and then the message is sent. But here's what will happen if you vote for somebody that is a very low character. One of the ways to have more politicians of low character is to continue casting votes for them. I happen to believe that I would like to see the Republicans retain the Senate, and I would like to see Trump sent packing. I think Trumpism is bullyism. I think it is fundamentally and foundationally based upon malice and cruelty in many, many ways. And Eric has talked eloquently about Antifa, and he's talked eloquently about um, you know, Marxists. I haven't heard him talk as much about the alt-right and QAnon and these radical... Uh, white supremacist conspiracy theorists that have populated parts of the right and have inflicted violence and cruelty in the United States of America. Now, and this is part of the right now. And Trump will retweet some of these people. He will say that the QAnon, he, will, he won't condemn QAnon. He won't condemn QAnon, y'all. There is something dark festering on the right side of the American political aisle. Very, very dark. I have seen it with my own eyes. It has to be, it has to be sent packing. It cannot be a part of this movement. So I tend to say, look, let's send a message, Republican Party. If you want to win office ever again, do not nominate malicious and cruel people. And I'll demonstrate it by the, there are non-malicious, non-cruel, high-character Republicans we'll vote for, and there will be a gap. There will be more people voting for those senators than voted for the president, and that sends a message. So the hot question now is for you, Eric, and it actually connects with what David was saying. What do you say to David's argument about Trump's moral failure being too great to overcome some of Trump's good policies? And I'd also like to rope in another slightly related question. How do you reconcile Trump's claimed faith with his inability to admit any shortcomings, wrongs, or weaknesses in his own life. So 
you know, How do I reconcile his what? His faith? Yeah, so, so I guess it's a two-part I'm not part. aware of his faith. Okay. I mean, I think, uh, you know, anybody who says anything about his faith, you know, it's, faith is a complicated thing, but I don't get the impression that he is uh, a spirit-filled, born-again evangelical, but that's not the point. I don't know how my dentist feels about the Holy Spirit, but, you know, she's an amazing dentist. Uh, so we're talking about a lot of things here, right? Um, when you talk about how does he reconcile his faith with, say it again, what was the... Well, the, the big question, the, the highest rated question was, how do you reconcile his his moral, I guess David is kind of putting oh, oh, I know, his I know, moral I know, failures I, on one side of the uh, yeah. scale and his policy successes yeah. on the other and saying the moral failures so greatly outweigh the policy failures yeah, that we shouldn't I, I think the idea that his moral failures are, are so manifest is, is silly. I, I simply reject it, period. But when you want to talk about his inability to grasp the idea that he needs to uh, you know, repent of this or confess that or whatever. I don't think he has any obligation to do any of that publicly. That's just political theater, and we've seen all kinds of politicians do it absolutely for the wrong reasons. They're doing it to keep the voters on the hook. Um, and so I, I really don't, you know, Trump is somebody who obviously. Uh, believes in thinking positively and speaking positively, and I think there's a lot actually to be said for that. I, I think it has its limits, but I think that's generally what you get with him, and uh, he, he's not the kind of a guy who is, is going to do that. But, you know, most of the people who stormed the beaches at Normandy weren't those kinds of guys either. Not everybody wears their emotions and their thoughts on their sleeves. So I, I think this is the kind of, you know, straining at a gnat to swallow a can, camel that only theologically sophisticated evangelicals are discussing. I think most Americans shrug and think that's, that just seems silly to me. Two-part question for Eric. Um, this will appeal to one of, to my children. What is your favorite episode of VeggieTales that you wrote? <laughs> And uh, more importantly to this... Maybe David and I can agree on something because uh, this is... Actually, this is the most important question of the evening. David, what is your favorite VeggieTales episode? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's a really good question. I think the number of times that... Uh, what is it, the song that God... God protects you from the boogeyman? God is bigger than the boogeyman. God is bigger than the boogeyman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's even bigger than the monsters on TV. That song was a mantra in our house for so long, so I just have to go with that episode. Yes, and I, and I think that uh, I, I, I will agree with that because it's a brilliant theological principle. And of course, theologically fussy evangelicals were very upset that vegetables were joking around about biblical principles. Those people, of course, needed to get a life. Most of them did get a life, and now they love VeggieTales. But I had very little to do with VeggieTales. I was honored and privileged to do some writing uh, for them, and I was, I'm the voice of the narrator on the Esther video. So if you, uh, if you watch it, even to this day, I'm still the narrator. That's how good a job I did. <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I don't have a favorite episode, but I would agree with that. That's, to me, the most memorable uh, line from them. I'm so grateful that you didn't pivot Veggie Tales into a pro-Trump speech because you you could have worked it. Oh yeah, uh, but you didn't, and so Phil Vischer good. would not like that. 
There is a follow-up question, uh, not related to VeggieTales, from the same person. Um, so obviously you mentioned about politicians lying and breaking their promises as being an endemic issue with elected officials over the past however many years. Have you uh, seen Donald Trump break any promises in his time in office? Well, that, this to me is one of the reasons that I have come to love Donald Trump. And by the way, I used to hate him. I used to absolutely hate him. I'm a New Yorker. He struck me as a, just a vulgar New Yorker, blah, 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 all the stuff that David's been saying. And, you know, that, that affected me. Mm. But I wrote a piece making fun of him for the New Yorker magazine, and it was published. And in the course of writing that piece making fun of him, I saw that he's kind of like, almost like a Borscht Belt comedian in his delivery. He's brilliantly funny. And I guess I feel um, that ultimately uh, he is a truth teller and he says things so boldly that some people find it insulting or offensive or whatever. But the most amazing thing about him that I have come to appreciate as I have changed my opinion of him over the years is that this man actually brought back the concept that when politicians make a promise, they should talk about it after they're elected and try to do it after they're elected. I grew up, as most of us here did, at a time when politicians were famous for making promises and then never mentioning them again. This president goes down the line about, I said this, and I did this, and I said this, and I did this, and it's so refreshing, but it's also kind of staggering because I never believed in my lifetime a politician would actually talk about his promises after he was elected and try to get it done. So there's a plain spokenness about him, you know, like in the old days when you do a deal on a handshake, he actually does the stuff that he's talking about, and I, I just find that incredibly refreshing, almost shocking. Well, we're just about out of time, but well, there is... I, one, yeah, real quick, I mean, the idea that Trump would be considered a truthful person is mind-boggling to me. It's just mind-boggling. The man has documented lies by an avalanche of documented lies. I mean, just recently, when he, when he was accused um, by, you know, these anonymous sources of, of insulting war dead and of insulting POWs, his denial... The very sentence in which he denied it contained a lie, where he said he never called John McCain a loser. That was on tape. It was obvious. Everyone had seen it. There, the, the man lies constantly. His associates lied constantly. Some of them have been received prison time for lying. Um, they, he apologized for what he said about McCain. And he didn't use the word loser. He said, I prefer people who didn't get he caught. He said the word loser. It's on video. McCain is a loser. He said but the he, word But he loser. apologized for that. But apologies mean nothing anymore because wait, wait, evangelicals wait, wait, wait. don't he, believe in grace anymore when it comes to Donald Trump, do <laughs> wait, they? He, uh-huh. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll let I, the record reflect I, for there's itself. There's one question that I'd like to ask uh, you, David, that it's been kind of waiting on the queue and getting lots of votes. And I think it's interesting. Uh, the question is, what does French think about Antifa radical BLM supported by the left and mainstream media in terms of Christian morals? What do I think about it? what Antifa and what? And Antifa, I'm just reading it. So Antifa slash radical BLM. You so can interpret it however you want to. What do I think about them being supported by the media? I, I think the question is, you the here... 
I'm interpreting. Uh, I think the question is, uh, if you, you were criticizing kind of the fringe Trump supporter, the QAnon, well, what do you think about the fringe Biden supporter? Uh, so first of all, Antifa hates Biden, but I hate Antifa. Well, you know, I don't hate the people, but I hate the movement. Antifa's terrible. Who's pro-Antifa aside from Antifa? Uh, you know, this is one of the biggest red herrings. This is, a, this is a group of people who loathe the American system, including the Democratic and the Republican parties. One of the reasons why a lot of people on the left are frustrated with Antifa, aside from the fact that they're manifestly violent and lawless, is they believe that Antifa is helping Donald Trump through their lawlessness. But Antifa doesn't care. They don't see a dime's worth of difference between Biden and Trump. They're trying to overthrow the fundamental system itself. Completely opposed to Antifa. Antifa does not have a substantial political support in the United States of America. They don't look at Biden and say, yeah, that's our influence in the Democratic Party. They look at Biden and say, that's evidence the Democratic Party is too mainstream and moderate. Antifa is a fringe, violent, lawless organization comprised of people who are a combination of anarchists, radical, quasi-communists, or just people who love mayhem and are criminals. It's a terrible movement. As far as Black Lives Matter, there is a huge number of people who are saying the words Black Lives Matter and are saying those words because those words need to be said. Those words need to be said in this country. And I'm sorry, we are still dealing with the legacy of 345 years of violently supported, by law, racial discrimination and bigotry. 56 years of contentious change does not erase that. And so when we see what we have seen with our own eyes, the declaration Black Lives Matter is something that needs desperately to be said in this culture and in this country. Does that mean as a pro-life Christian who supports religious liberty and families that I'm gonna read the Black Lives Matter organization, this small organization that you can look up on the website and they have elements where they're against the nuclear family or they wanna see a pardon for a cop killer and say, oh, French, you're for that. Please, y'all, seriously? Is that what we've come to, is that if I'm going to say express uh, support for a movement that is demanding an end to, for example, grotesquely lawless police brutality, I now have to also raise my hand, but I'm still against cop killers and for the nuclear family. You know, that's what our discourse has become. Um, you know, the reason why I pointed out the alt-right and the reason why I've pointed out QAnon, you know, white evangelicals have not put, are not Antifa supporters, they're not, you know, uh, the formal BLM sub organization supporters, but they are supporting Donald Trump by overwhelming numbers. And guess what is in the movement? This movement that they have helped put in power is some of the most vile racist you can possibly imagine. I can tell you stories of what have hap has happened to my family. My youngest daughter is African-Americans. When we came out formally against Trump, my wife and I, in late 2015, early 2016, the vile racial attacks that came into my family at scale would boggle your mind. People, Trump supporters on Twitter took my daughter. She was seven years old at the time. They photoshopped her face into gas chambers. They photoshopped her face into slave fields. This was the alt-right that the CEO of the Trump 
campaign said he wanted his publication to be the platform for. So if I'm worried about that, I have good reason to be worried about and spare me the idea that my concern about the alt-right or my concern about QAnon means I'm soft on Antifa. All right, Please. I, we, we are out of time, but I know, Eric, you've been chomping at the bit. I just want to say Trump word. fired the man you're talking about. He fired him early in the administration, number one. Number two, where the heck is this fictional alt-right? Have they been looting? Have they been burning things? They are such, they are such a tiny minority that comparing them to Antifa or to the BLM Marxist mobs who don't give a damn about actual black lives and who have horribly cynically, cynically grabbed that phrase for their own purposes, they would have happily killed George Floyd if they thought it could give them power for their Marxist ideals. They don't care about blacks, and that's why I won't say Black Lives Matter if they demand it. I know Black Lives Matter, but they're going around and demanding it and using it as a slogan is turning people into suckers. They need to be rejected. They hate America. They hate everything Christians believe in. And anybody who hates everything Christians believe in and everything the founders believe in need to be rejected, including with including the alt-right or whoever else, but the idea that they would be compared seriously to what is going on in America right now as the whole country is burning is, is just amazing to me. The alt-right has killed far more people in the United States of America than Antifa. Far more. Now, I would say that we are out of time, but that would be a lie because we're actually way past time. <laughs> but please, let's thank our guests. Thank you both so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.